Welcome to Rec Talks, a podcast dedicated to the latest trends from the world of RecTech, FinTech, and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Know Your Customer. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Alessia Benevelli as my guest. Alessia joined the World Savings and Retail Banking Institute and the European Savings and Retail Banking Group in Brussels as an advisor on payments, data, and innovation in June 2020. After serving as judicial clerk at the National Court of Appeal of Milan and practicing corporate law, she obtained an LLM. And in 2019, she joined the Banking Markets, Innovation and Consumers Department at the European Banking Authority, working in the area of payments and consumer protection. Alessia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Klaus, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet you. One of the great things of doing this podcast is that I get the chance to talk with very interesting industry experts who have landed on the fintech and regtech space from all sorts of backgrounds. How would you describe your specific journey to date through the world of law and finance? Well, if I were asked to choose just one word to describe it, I would say unpredictable and also exciting, but that would make it two words. So I don't know if I can <laughs> use both. In law school, I actually specialized in company law as you also said. So I was very surprised when I was accepted for a traineeship in the financial markets of one of the biggest Italian banks, Montepaschi di Siena. And well, I can say that that was love of sight from my side. I tried to stay in the field of banking and financial law. And also when I served as a judicial clerk at the Court of Appeal, I managed to specialize in banking and finance litigation. And those were very intense months. I learned a lot and especially I understood how judges think, which was very useful in my second life as a litigation lawyer, and I can assure you. Then I decided to supplement my studies and a week after passing the bar, I flied to Edinburgh for an LLM in international banking law and finance. Again, I learned a lot and the experience gave me an invaluable chance to work for a few months in the payments unit of the European Banking Authority in Paris. And that was a very new environment for me and introduced me to a whole new world the world of payments that was not on my radar. Because, you know, making a payment is an activity that we do all perform daily and we take it for granted. We open our wallet, we choose between cash or cards, uh, we maybe simply pull out our mobile phones and we do it. That's it. We do not think about what we're doing. We just pay. For that activity to run so smoothly, there's a huge work in the background to make sure customers are safe and they don't lose their money. And so, to be honest, I'm really excited that my work actually makes a difference in the daily life of each of us. It certainly does. We've all seen huge change in the past month. I remember that cash basically vanished, at least here from the Irish system where I was active in the early months of the pandemic and was completely replaced by these uh, new cards or phone payments all the time. And I, I think these, uh, a lot of these changes are permanent now. People really switched in a big way and, and it was a big push. This is definitely something that wouldn't have happened so fast, at least without the pandemic. Even uh, the trust of customer in these uh, contactless payments was from day one, 100%. And I don't think that would have happened if there weren't these conditions and environment. We have seen the same thing happening in other economies. I spent a lot of time in 2018 and 19 between Hong Kong and Singapore. Now, I remember at some point in late 2019, looking in my wallet and seeing the exact same 200 Singapore dollars 
that I had gotten out of an ATM a year and a half earlier because I had not used cash in all my visits. And they have dozens of visits to Singapore at all. And there are these markets that are far ahead. I think the, the world really caught up in a, in a big rush in the past 12 months. Yeah, definitely. But actually, even if cash is not used as much, there is a paradox, the banknote paradox, that says that even if cash use for transactional purposes is decreasing, the number of banknotes in circulation in the European Union is increasing. And that is somehow unexpected, probably can be explained because people tend to hoard more cash, put it under the mattress, or a lot of cash and a lot of banknotes in euro are hold outside of the eurozone, even because it's more accepted and it's safer uh, means of payment than their own currency. Very interesting point. Back to what you did there and what you're currently doing, I was already engaged uh, with the European Savings and Retail Banking Group, but for our listeners who might not be familiar with them, can you explain their key function and objectives? When were they created actually and why? The birth of the European Savings and Retail Banking Group is linked to the birth of the European Union. It was officially created on the 23rd of April of 1963 as a savings banks group of the European Economic Community. The reason was that at the time, banking laws and legal forums for banks uh, differed significantly across Europe. And because the European Commission was going to harmonize the banking sector, the savings banks group had to make plain difference between savings banks, commercial banks and cooperative banks. Savings and retail banks are not driven by short-term profit but rather seek to bring a return to society. This is our mission. Our members' common value are uh, the importance of cultivating local ties, um, nurturing customer relationship, conducting business in socially responsible ways, but especially to give back to the community. The goal uh, at the time was to defend savings banks' interests by making them heard at the commission, and this is still part of the goal. The original ESBG vision led to an association that not only served to defend, to strengthen, to integrate national savings banks association into a European savings and retail banking sector, but it also helped Europe to integrate at a fundamental level. Because we strongly believe the strength of savings banks rests on the power of their people, so their customers. Very good. That is actually a very democratic approach. Apart from the big change that we've already discussed in payments, for the past 18 months, we have seen an overall sharp increase in digitization of financial services in Europe and around the world. From your point of view, what are the key opportunities and risks that member states here in Europe need to be aware of in this area? Yes, indeed. The impact of the coronavirus pandemic on digitalization of financial services has been huge. For instance, it has accelerated the shift from cash to cashless means of payment and increased the share of digital transactions. In the early months of the pandemic, regulators decided to increase the limits for contactless transactions without a PIN code, for instance. But uh, during these months, more and more people have also learned to pay with a finger on their phones or by scanning a QR code, something that probably few people would have so coming at the beginning of 2020. People can also open a bank account by simply taking a picture of their identity card. But all of this also means sharp increase of cyber attacks and fraud attempts. Across industries, for instance, in the first four months of 2021, the rate of suspected digital fraud attempts globally increased by 24% 
compared to the last four months of 2020. It's, it's huge. But in the EU, especially in the payments industry, fraud rates have not increased significantly, irrespective of the increase for transactions without a PIN code. This doesn't mean we're done. Far from that. I believe one of the main roles that member states can play is that of promoting financial education and digital technology literacy, for instance, so that customers can quickly see if an email is weird, uh, they shouldn't tap on the link, or whether that particular digital uh, QR code seems not really the original one. And so they can be the first line of defense of themselves. And another key role, I think, uh, will be played by data protection authorities, whose importance is growing to defend misuse of data, which is a thing that is happening and may happen in the future. Very interesting that you mentioned data protection. We see this connection as well in our work. There is always the question of data protection because we are all dealing with very, very sensitive data by now. And uh, this is something that we had to build in from the get-go into all our products. Yeah, I mean, we are doing it. We are sending pictures of our IDs uh, normally now in the pandemic. And some of us don't realize how risky it is. So again, financial literacy and knowledge of what could happen, I think would be a very big help in fighting fraud. How do you see the role of innovation in banking? What can smaller and more traditional financial institutions, especially from the savings and banking area, do to make the most of the current technological advancements? Innovation has been a thing in banking for some time already. Um, home banking, instant payments, uh, access to account, these have all been a reality for quite some time for the majority of European customers. For instance, today, blockchain technology can help reducing the time and costs required to perform you know, your customer duties. Technology can also help you to get a loan approved in less time or even immediately in some cases. Uh, we can think about the buy now, pay later. With the opening up of payments account data and infrastructure, PSD2 has paved the way for a new banking era, basically. The development of API technology is transforming uh, traditional banks into platforms that can provide different services on a 24-7 basis. And given that more and more customer interaction happens online, electronic identities can considerably smoothen the customer journey across digital channels. And at the same time, they can safeguard privacy and security, which are key interests for customers. So overall, I believe technology can be of great help and also free up human resources that can be moved towards more tailor-made in-person services. And that is something that I think in the future will become more and more required, irrespective of the digitalization process that is taking place. Always having human interaction will be a key value in the future, I think. And here, let me say it, savings and retail banks can play a major role by supporting marketing initiatives aimed at developing new technologies without forgetting their nature of entity closely tied to the community and the human interaction. I absolutely agree there. Obviously, I'm heading a technology company and I'm an early adopter of all sorts of technologies and APIs that allow me to connect to different banks would be one of those. I always thought that that human interaction, the trust factor, and all that that is um, associated with especially the smaller and uh, savings banks, that is something that we can't forget and that will play a major, major role uh, going forward because we don't bank on an API alone. It's interesting to see that 
even some of the more digital banks, the, the challenger banks that are out now, start to accumulate some sort of trust there. I think a lot rests on their ability to make customer interaction, not just digital, but also personal in case there's any problems, because they will certainly lose their customers if that part is cut off. Yes, I think you're right. People want to know that if they have a problem, they can get in touch with a person. And so that is that is key in the customer relationship, to have someone to talk to. I have another question here. What are some of the interesting initiatives by local European and international regulators that can effectively drive that information we talked about in especially payments and finance? Well, you know, um, not all regulatory initiatives are effective in driving innovation. You cannot simply force market players to innovate because you said so. First, you have to create a level playing field, a stable environment that forces innovation. And then I'm sure innovation follows spontaneously, 100%. Market-led initiatives have proven to be very successful in the long run with uh, adoption rates that are much higher. And that happens in a shorter time frame. But of course, the market needs some support. For instance, in the case of the European Payments Initiative, which is a homegrown pan-European initiative launched last year that leverages instant payments and cards. Uh, I believe in this case, uh, regulators can play a major role in supporting the initiative in, and in making sure the market fully understands the importance of this initiative. In this context, another forum that has been effectively driving innovation in payments is represented by the Euro Retail Payments Board, the ERPB, which is a high-level strategic body, and it's tasked with fostering the integration, the innovation, the competitiveness of the Europe retail payments in the EU. It is hosted by the ECB, and it was launched in 2013. And so far, it has facilitated the development of, for instance, instant payments, payment initiation services, and P2P mobile payments. And more recently, the RPB facilitated also the dialogue between different market players uh, in formulating key elements for the setup of a future API access scheme, which is something you may find interesting. It is a scheme that unlocks uh, the opportunities from asset sharing beyond PSD2, with a fair distribution of value and risk between the actors in the SIPA area. To do so, basically the scheme focuses on the exposure via an API of non-personal bank-owned information, customer data, customer transaction, initiation services. Uh, at the same time, it fosters innovation and increases the choice for customers and scheme participants. Basically, with this scheme, the entire ecosystem will take full advantage of infrastructure investment made in areas such as instant payments and open asset sharing. And it will allow the market to develop a broader European open asset sharing economy beyond payments. The work has just started, of course, but uh, having agreed on a base, on a common base with all the relevant actors, I'm sure th this will pave the way forward and we'll have something very interesting in the next years. I didn't actually know about that. Uh, good to hear about it here. Uh, and I agree with the sentiment that uh, it's not really the job of regulators to make innovation happen, but creating a level playing field and unifying standards is a great way of allowing innovation to happen. And Europe is a very diverse place and a very interesting testbed for these technologies as well. And if you want to have a look, the report of the SEPA API access scheme is published on the ERPB website. Thank you.
In the past couple of months, we have been hearing more and more about the advent of central bank digital currencies. That's a very interesting field now. Based on your knowledge in this area, can you give an overview of what these instruments are and what are their benefits? Well, to put it simply, central bank digital currencies are digital currencies issued by a state and they represent a claim on the central bank of that state. So CBDCs differ from commercial bank money because they're issued directly by a central bank. And they also differ from other virtual currencies such as Bitcoin because there's no, in those, there's no central authority capable of limiting their use. So the idea is that a CBDC can be a safe and a greener alternative to cash. In this respect, I must say that although customers may not realize it, the secure management of cash and the maintenance of the wide network of ATMs is extremely expensive for banks. And handling cash has also an impact on the environment. Just think about all those trucks moving cash from one location to another. So a decline in cash usage, where the COVID-19 pandemic has played a key role, has a logical effect on the related unit costs. So the less cash you have to mobilize, the more costly it is. And therefore, I'm not really surprised that uh, discussions around CBDCs have increased during the last year. And I personally found it exciting that these discussions have been involving customers and citizens too. The public consultation on a possible digital euro launch by the ECB last year collected an all-time record of 8,800 contributions. And the 94% of them came from respondents who identified themselves as citizens, not professional, not academics, citizens that wanted to have their say in the possible issuance of a digital euro. So the interest is high, not only from the industry, but also from everywhere, the, the whole environment. There's two questions that come up in my mind. Uh, first one would be, how close are we to the introduction of a digital euro? Well, at this point in time, I believe it's not a matter of if, but a matter of when it will come. At the beginning of the year, the ECB said we'll have a digital euro in five years. Mm -hmm. I would be a bit more cautious and say we will hardly see a digital euro before the end of 2026. This is not only because the development phase may take longer than expected. We all know that hiccups can come and other challenges. But also several decisions must be taken. Some of them are technical. For instance, will it be token bearer or an account-based digital euro? While others are more political and therefore will require agreement with all member states involved. I can think, uh, for instance, will the digital euro enjoy the status of legal tender? Will there be a, the possibility to pay anonymously? Will there be limits to individual holdings? And if so, will it be the same amount in the euro area or will each country fix a limit depending on their concrete needs? Then you have to consider all the risks connected with, uh, for instance, disintermediation, financial stability, monetary policy. It's, you know, a lot of questions and very few answers for now. So I'm waiting to see what the ECB will decide in July and very excited to see what will happen. It's certainly an interesting field. The second question I had in mind there is, will it redefine the role of the savings and retail banking? We'll have to see on the concrete design of a digital euro. Of course, we stand ready to further engage with ECB. We have produced some very interesting papers on it to share our views, but also to suggest some specific implementation measures. 
And the most important thing is that our customers are happy with what services we provide them. So we stand ready. I find it unlikely to think of a future system where I would walk into the central bank and open an account there and have my savings with them directly. And the central bank in Europe dealing with 300 million consumers directly. I agree. The ECB itself cannot handle 300 million customers. It's not even in their mandate. Even if they wanted, they couldn't. So that's definitely a role for us. Now, if tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, we don't, we're not stopping in Europe here. What would be the first thing you would do? And of course, why? Okay, so this is the $1 million question. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know what to answer. Even if I think about it, there is no one single thing that would solve everything. There are always unintended consequences that could have even a bigger impact than the measure itself. If I had to choose something that is currently missing, I would say I would probably regulate crypto assets and probably improve the supervision of all listed companies. But from here, there could be a hundred other measures that could be implemented and probably it would be too long for a single podcast. Alessia, I, I love that first thought of yours that every regulation does have unintended consequences and you have to be very careful there. It's a short blanket. You cover something and you uncover something else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks.